Welcome back to Christianity Commandeer. This is Dan here with your host. I will be a solo host today because Brandon is feeling under the weather. Uh, unfortunately, he can't join us this week, but he will be back next week and he'll do his own solo uh, broadcast next week uh, on the topic of his choice. Uh, after that, then we'll follow back up and get back into Genesis. Uh, but for now, I'm uh, just going to go a little bit different direction today and talk about a little bit more the legal aspects of, of information, data, evidence, and stuff like that. So first, I want to talk about evidence. Now, evidence is something that you can use to prove a point. It's a very simple definition, uh, but uh, a lot of people confuse evidence. So let's all get into that in a little bit. Uh, a fact is just information or like a data point. It can be numbers from a chart. It could be the color of a car. You know, there could be something about a person. Uh, usually it could be potentially subjective versus objective. And the definition changes there is that subjective is usually kind of more of an opinion, uh, a personalized opinion from some person. So someone's opinion could be that person was going very fast. Another person's opinion might be, eh, I don't think he was going that fast, maybe 50. And we're talking about someone on the freeway and maybe someone else says they look like they're going slow. Now, objective is typically used as a, uh, it's supposed to be not subjective. It's supposed to be uh, a group of people considering essentially what the right answer is. So, uh, so for example, if you're saying uh, whether somebody did something negligent or not, typically you're taking a group of people in a jury and you're using some type of an objective standard, which is what is the reasonable thing to do uh, in, in that situation. So, for example, in a car accident, you might say, well, that person should have had uh, appropriate tires on their car. They should have been able to navigate on the ice. They should have slowed down. And if they didn't do those things like a reasonable person would have, that's what we call negligence. It's, it's acting outside the scope of what's reasonable. And when you're talking and trying to prove a point, people will make arguments. And arguments are really stringing together facts and trying to make a persuasive uh, statement that causes people to believe your side of the story. So for example, in like a car accident situation, you would say something like, uh, that person was driving over the speed limit. We have many witnesses that suggest that. We know that the vehicle's wheels were deficient because after the accident, they were seen by an expert and that person testified today and talked about how bad those wheels were and it would have made it hard to operate and navigate and it was an icy day that day because we have uh, we have this person talking about how the temperature was that day and we had this other witness who talked about the ice so this person probably acted improperly and caused this accident and that person's insurance should pay for the other guy's uh, car's damages now thinking of arguments there's a thing called conclusory arguments and it's something we do in the law profession often when you don't have somewhere else to go um, it's 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 trying to convince the other side without actually using facts so for example it's often like what we call a circular argument or uh, an argument that doesn't have any context so for example saying let's just let's just do it here you know the Bible is inerrant the Bible is true and to say that to someone and not give context or anything else connected to it, that's just a conclusory argument. It's, it is perfect, it's the best. And without going into the facts or talking about background, you're not really talking about uh, anything that helps someone understand why you would say that. 
Uh, and that's why conclusory arguments are often very damaging or, or dangerous because if you let them stand and you let them be uh, considered as they are, then we're really not proving anything. We're not helping people understand something. We're really just saying something's true. And I, th I find it very dangerous for people to suggest that the Bible says anything, really, uh, just because you say it says this, this other person says it says this. And <clears throat> it, you know, if you're talking about raising kids, you're getting them into the mindset that really whatever your opinion is, is true. And maybe the only way, uh, unless you've done a very good job mentioning the tension of verses or the tensions of interpretations, uh, those are all very helpful for people to grow with their understanding of the Bible. And uh, imagine, just let's, let's just imagine you're in court and you're being tried and they're saying that you have done some some something wrong and the penalty is 10 years in prison and imagine that the judge says when you come in the judge already is assuming that you've committed the crime and the reason why that is is because that judge she knows that when people come in on average they have committed the crime the prosecutors usually only try to take their better cases they try to only spend time on the ones they think they can win and imagine the judge just takes that and holds on to it and really strings all the evidence down down the line against you so for example when you come and testify and you say well i i wasn't there your honor because i was in this location and that's my alibi and the judge says well i'm sure you're, you're not telling the truth and i'm sure that you tried to build this story so that when you did do this this wrong you could have then have an alibi so instead of taking the alibi for what it is and maybe even looking at the records of this person's credit card transactions, an elaborate story is built to make this conclusory argument that suggests that that person just is guilty, so everything must line up to prove that person's guilt. And the, the longer you make that, that argument hold, the further you get really outside the spectrum of what's even close to being reasonable. So for example, imagining that someone gave their card to someone else who then flew to another city and racked up and bought things just to prove that they have an alibi, although that may be possible, that becomes unlikely, especially when you can compare it against other types of evidence like GPS evidence uh, on a cell phone uh, or witness statements that you might find, well, maybe they, they saw them there or they saw this person there. Um, but just imagine what it'd be like if you treated everyone else with conclusory arguments that you've made an assumption about someone, what the end result is, and you're always finding yourself working backwards to tr prove that point and <clears throat> since we're talking about a little bit of Genesis, I think that's how a lot of people treat the Bible. They've decided what it is, um, not why it is necessarily, uh, but what it is is this perfect inerrant book. And so every time people talk about a portion of it, they've come to their conclusion and then they work backwards. And as I was mentioning on Facebook, we were going to try to tackle the question about when people started to believe that the world was 6,000 years old, well, conclusory arguments are almost limitless when you talk about limiting the world's age to that because now you're trying to conflict pretty much all the sciences that exist out there for natural sciences, history, anthropology, all these things. They have all these uh, data points and informations and ways of testing data and, and making arguments and theories. And you're just saying because the Bible is inerrant and because the Bible has this one timeline in it, that every all these all these other people are wrong, and all these people will spend decades learning about these things, training about these things, and yet you're coming back and just saying, "Here's my conclusive argument. This is it."
All right, so let's talk a little bit about written evidence. Western culture is very dominated by a bias towards written evidence. Let me give you an example. So I often have people call me and for legal advice, and they tell me they don't have any evidence to prove what they're describing to me. And one, that's, that's wrong because they've already told me this story that they want to sue over, and that is evidence. A person's testimony is typically the primary evidence in, in many types of cases. The fact that someone will go on the stand and swear under oath, that's often what turns cases. But we've seen movies where we find these smoking gun letters or these written documents between two people that seem to prove something. Uh, in my experience, we rarely find smoking guns. These are, these are, these are rarely found uh, things that turn cases. People are very careful. They know there's things like written evidence, so they try to avoid it. And... I also have people that call in and say, like, well, it's a he said, she said. And they think, well, that means I just lose, which is also not true because we don't weigh uh, he said, she says as just 50-50s. We weigh them by their credibility. Is the person that's talking to me and telling me that case more credible than the person that's going to say something different? Well, one way you discount people's credibility is you show some of the paperwork that might surround them, so the emails that they send or the other conversations or maybe even just testimony from other people that will have conversations with them to discount their credibility, which means that maybe the other person's credibility is much stronger and they might win that case. And so let's, let's just focus in on written evidence and kind of the bias we have, um, imagining and hoping and thinking that we're going to find this, this, this smoking gun to win a case. Um, but when we're talking about the Bible, um, many of these records, we, we don't have the originals. So many of them have been translated uh, and because they were written down, does that just mean they're true? And for many of you listening, you're probably thinking like, well, I think the Bible's inerrant. It's, it's great, so it's, it's true. But imagine that you're in a courtroom for a second and you're on the stand talking about the fact that you didn't steal this guy's car and there's a piece of evidence introduced <coughs> and it says just in black and white that guy stole this car and the judge says well it looks like that's written evidence it doesn't look like you can can fight it it's written it was found that's the end of the story of course it wouldn't be the end of the story right because what makes that written document so important is the fact that you know who wrote it and do they stand up and say yeah i swear under oath that i wrote that but that doesn't even matter right you want to know why they wrote that you want to understand why they wrote it. And did they even have uh, an opportunity to see the theft? How do they know about the theft? You would put them on the stand and you would talk uh, with them at great length. They understand why they would have written something like that. Now, what's interesting is that evidence that was just written out wouldn't even go in front of a jury if it wouldn't be corroborated by someone talking about it or some, some way to show that it's credible. For example, it's a business record and that it's an email sent between people and there's a way that we can verify who said it and maybe it's something very negative against someone and sometimes that's one way to get evidence in because it's so negative against what the person wrote that they don't need to testify why they said it or not uh, it just can be shown to the jury now they'll have an opportunity to explain it but it could be very damaging for them to try to explain it so jumping back to the bible <coughs> we don't always know who wrote these documents we don't always know the context or the reasoning or, the, or their understanding of why it was written. And 
there's still many people that read the Bible <clears throat> and are quick to just jump to the fact that it, because it's written, it's, it's, it's true and it's good and wholesome. And it can still be good and wholesome in truth, uh, but that doesn't mean we have to think of it as the way it was written is perfect. And let me just consider that uh, for a second, when you look at the Bible, some of the parts of the Bible are not the oldest written works that exist. For example, when we talk about Genesis, there's the Babylonian stories that are older. It appears that much of these early stories in Genesis are pulled from this older document that exists and, and pulled over and told their stories. So do we just weigh the two documents as the older one's the winner? Of course not, uh, right? But there are ways to kind of learn and consider, well, where what's the background <coughs> of this information and figure out, well, where did it come from? Did it come from this other oral tradition? Um, but it's it's just part of living the tension of the difficulty of, of trying to read a text and weigh uh, how you respond to it. And we know that in a courthouse, you know, in a, in a courtroom, just because something's written doesn't mean it's it's good evidence and it's something that should be understood by who wrote it and who was giving that description of something. And then so why do we look at the Bible and then throw that away and just say like, well, we think we know who it is and so that must be true. <coughs> the, the odd thing is that when I grew up, I didn't even, I didn't necessarily even look into those things. I kind of just took the Bible and considered it to be true and wholesome and, and right. And I didn't even try to look at commentaries. I didn't try to get back context or I didn't do a very good job of looking at history. I just did the conclusory argument thing, which is start to the end. These are all true and inerrant. And basically then that's your, your argument all the way through. And you make everything else fit that. You read the Bible verse and you just make it fit into there. And every time you find conflicts in the Bible, you just say, well, there's, there's a way to harmonize this. These things can fit. And you actually don't look at them. I, I, I have to admit that I didn't notice inconsistencies in the Bible when I was younger because I wasn't looking for them. I wasn't trying to engage the Bible and weigh why some things just don't line up. I just looked past them. And I'm, I'm always, I always kind of remark when I find someone who's been reading the Bible for a long time and I say something about inconsistencies kind of nonchalantly and they say, what, what inconsistency? And I, I always want to tell them, if you don't know there's inconsistency in the Bible, then you've never read it. Because in my modern life, just reading through the Bible, it became very clear to me that there was things competing with each other in the Bible. And even though those things might be competing with each other, it doesn't mean that it takes away from the Bible. As I've gotten older, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. Um, but I definitely was set up on this kind of pedestal understanding that if you knock the Bible down, maybe it's not true. Or as people just kind of living out their lives in this kind of the perfect life that Christians are supposed to live, and they fall off the wagon, they're not really sure if they can get back on the wagon. They're living in this realm where they don't know what to do because how do you fix the problem once you've broken it? And that brings us into the last portion of what I want to do today, which is cover a topic that I call uh, Mixed Messages by Moody. Now, I'm talking about Moody Bible Institute. I'm also talking about KMBI. It's, it's a Moody radio station. And it's a conservative radio station. And it's, it's probably more in line with what I grew up with and my understanding of, of what uh, basically the assumptions we have as Christians uh, in the evangelical tradition. And the reason why I call it that is because this podcast really focuses a lot on outcomes, uh, or in other words, the biblical kind of understanding is weighing the fruits. Uh, kind of like I said before, it's not so much that I, I blame someone. 
or, or I understood what exactly what I was told. We're talking about what were the outcomes. So I was taught this as a kid. I went to this church. I had these people teaching me. I don't remember their specifics, but my outcomes were these certain realities that seem very counter to Christ as I look back. So when, when I talk about Moody, I talk about a, an institution that when I grew up, I thought it was a great institution. I thought good people came from there. They were good Christians. Um, but ironically, as I got older, I started running into people who had uh, worked closely at Moody, went to Moody uh, school, um, and they did not have great outcomes. Uh, so I had uh, some people that I knew that they were doing the Moody thing as very young teenagers, uh, going through maybe a pastoral side of things. Their, their relationship ended in divorce. Uh, another person ended up in prison. I had another person who uh, went through uh, the Moody school and ended up losing their faith. Uh, just because they thought this is ridiculous how they teach these things, how uh, they tell things in kind of a one way. It has to be this way or the highway. And that felt very uncomfortable to them, uh, very contradictory to the kind of open love of Christ. And so I, I had kind of conflicted as I got older because I kept running into people who had just suffered from going through uh, either being close to Moody and their understanding and teachings and just kind of what their outcomes in life were. So I, so when you listen to the radio, you can kind of get some of these messages. And so I kind of want to just highlight a few uh, that kind of jump out at me because, I, I, to be honest, I could do a whole podcast on them because I, when, I re, when I listen, I, I, I just cringe now. I cringe. And, I, and it's, it's a different way of listening because I think on the face, a lot of these messages are perfectly fine. But when you think about potentially the outcomes of some of these messages, that's, that's why I cringe. So let me just jump right in. Uh, kind of to, 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 because I teed this one up already, um, talking about the kind of pedestal life and living a perfect life. And I was listening to a message here this last week, and it was talking about what you should do with temptation. And it was a story about a father and his son, and his son wanted to go to a, a party. And the dad said, well, what's going to go on there? Who's going to be there? What's going to happen? And the dad had decided, yeah, this isn't a place my son should be. It's not good for him. So he told his son, no, don't, don't, don't go to it. And then he kind of went off on this tirade of talking about what, what was politically correct. And <laughs> I think that's a, <coughs> a very quick message to some people um, because it's, uh, it's, it's language used in the conservative church that means something to people, which means you probably shouldn't do it if it's PC, which is ironic because the whole idea of having something be politically correct is, is saying that as we develop as a people, you probably shouldn't do that anymore. You shouldn't call these people these kinds of things. You shouldn't use these kinds of stereotypes. But for some reason, it's actually kind of a swing against in the conservative groups who actually use it as a way to kind of buffer themselves and keeping to doing what they're doing. So the, that pastor kept talking about the PC thing to do would have been to trust your son, right? Trust them, and they, they can handle themselves. And then he buttressed his argument by saying, well, I know what I would have done there. I wouldn't have been in a safe place to do the right things. And that's because I, I wouldn't trust myself there. I wouldn't trust my son. So you shouldn't go. And that's all well and good. And I, I grew up with, I mean, a severe uh, fear of things around my faith, a, a severe fear that there's all these things <coughs> working against me. And that if I'm not careful, I'm, I'm going to get burned. Or I'm going to lose my faith. And, and that's somewhat true. Like that's a fair argument to make. But the problem is, is if you've, you've spent all this time and energy fighting about avoiding temptation, you're really missing the point of the fact that you're going to be facing temptation 
the other 99% of the time. So where you're in control and you can avoid temptation, great. But I don't remember many messages when I was young discussing about what to do when you're facing temptation other than to run away from it. And that's an unworkable uh, reality for most people. Uh, I mean, think about today. Think about, think about modern times where really you can commit all the sins you want just with the, the phone sitting in your hand right now. You can look at images you shouldn't do. You can talk to people you shouldn't be to. You can slack off from work. You can download things you shouldn't. You can uh, play into consumerism and be buying things, or you can feel greed in your heart as you think the things you want to buy or you want to afford or that car that you think is bigger and better. I, I mean, you really, you're facing temptation every day. And so avoiding it, does that mean you, you throw your cell phone away? I, I highly doubt many Christians do that. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the comparison of the, the cutting the eye out so that it doesn't make you sin. Well, I don't know many Christians uh, willing or have been able to take that step, get rid of that phone as a way to avoid sinning um, because that would be the avoidant thing. In fact, maybe the most avoidant thing would be to go and live, be a monk, but it doesn't seem like that's the message I got as a kid. It was simply just avoid it and you'll be fine. And that gets to that kind of pedestal type of life. Once you fall off the pedestal, you can't get back on. And so a lot of Christians at young age struggle uh, with a lot of tensions, things that they're told that are a problem. So they, they have all these walls up everywhere, um, often just in dating relationships. I mean, really dating seemed like, like the worst thing to do as a kid, like it was dangerous. You're supposed to wait until you're much older because things terrible are going to happen and it could be sex. And really some of the most magical and important things you do in life is dating. And I was taught as a young man that it's something I should be afraid of because it's dangerous. And that's just, it's an unfortunate part of what we call the purity culture, talking about what you should do in your relationships when you're dating. Um, and, you know, this purity culture is something we'll get into more, but it's it's something that I, I'm going to have to live with the rest of my life. It's 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 been a very damaging thing in, in uh, just my relationships, uh, love life, and those kinds of things because I was told very securely what things were supposed to be, how things were supposed to go, and those things aren't possible if just because you get to marriage and you're able to avoid having sex before marriage that doesn't mean that everything's going to work out for you because that was the was what was put in front of me that's all that was the end of the story really you know everything was about this avoidance of it and getting to this point and then boom everything's good after that and very little was taught to me after that point um which kind of goes back to the the idea that we had this grew up in this very narrow uh, rule-oriented system that didn't have answers. Well, really didn't have answers for most things, but it had a lot of quite, you know, had a lot of answers and things you should do, a lot of rules. And the problem is, is that when we bring people up, we bring kids up in a system where if they fail and they fall off the tracks, there's no system that kicks in that helps them understand how to be a loving Christian faith-oriented person it's it's like a huge gap void that's presented to these kids and that's one reason why people have left the faith is because they think i guess i've fallen off and there's nothing else for me which is very ironic because the bible is very much in touch with the love of jesus christ mercy grace forgiveness and those to me seem like the most important parts of the bible but somehow i grew up in a system that was not talking about that it was so focused and fixated on what you should be doing in these dating relationships 
I should act and, and, and be a certain way and everything else will be fine. Well, it just happens to be that's why we're putting this on the podcast because kids that grow up in that type of reality do have a difficult time bracing themselves for errors, mistakes, sins, whatever you want to call them, and managing the rest of their life. And a lot of their pain and suffering is simply because they, they grew up Christian. And a lot of kids that weren't Christians didn't even have that fear, that, that uncomfortableness that caused them to believe they were doing something wrong. And then you have all these Christian kids running around, worried about it, feeling unsafe. And it's true that some people, you know, fear is something that can help people stay in line. But I feel like I really lived in a very fear-based religion that Satan was always out there on the edge, on the fringes, waiting to get you. Um, instead of thinking about Jesus being right next to you, walking with you, being there for you, loving you no matter what happened, somehow I got taught the exact opposite of Christianity. Uh, and again, I, we're talking about outcomes here. Uh, you know, so I don't think anyone taught me that Jesus didn't love me, but the messages that came through were fear. These are things you have to be worried about, and these are things that could ruin your lives. And those messages were more powerful than the love of Jesus Christ. I was very focused on being the right person, doing the right thing at the right time. And I don't know if that really made me a better Christian. I think a lot of people looked at me as a judgmental jerk because I stood for those things. And I don't necessarily think that's right. Just because you stand for something doesn't mean you have to be a judgmental a-hole. Um, we were very stringent people. Um, and I say we because I'm a twin, um, so I often do fall back in that. But I, our, our upbringing, we were very similar, trying to act a certain way, be a certain thing. And there was no way to actually think you succeeded. You had to keep doing it every day. And it's tiring. And when there's no success, then really there's only failure. There's only dropping off and falling off the, the, the wagon, so to speak. And eventually you're all going to fall off the wagon at some point because that's supposed to be the nature of our existence is making mistakes, sins, failures. So I would suggest that Jesus is a person that lives into things with us, our failures, our success, our weaknesses, and also is there in our happy times and successes and can be there. But one thing to really weigh when you're thinking about raising your kids is what's going to what's going to help make sure that when they get older and they start going through this, they don't feel like they're sitting in a world where there's fear surrounded by fear, surrounded by Satan. And if they fall off the pedestal, they have nowhere to go because if they have nowhere to go, there's a question of what, where their faith will be. Cause they'll think, you know, did my faith matter anymore? Am I too sinful to be loved by God? Am I too sinful to be loved by my parents? And those are things that really can put stress on people's relationship with their kids. I'm not going to try to just give a, an answer on how to handle this, but I think that it's important just to take time. Think about it for yourself. You know, weigh it in your small groups with your friends and family and talk about how other people did it and look at kind of outcomes of some of their kids and just think, you know, how did you keep a good relationship with them? How did they keep a faith that could grow with them and, and not, not turn their back on it because something didn't line up with their childhood? Yeah, and being a parent is tough. There, there's really no way to get around the fact that you're going to mess up. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to say things that you're going to regret. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to teach them that maybe you're not going to pan out that great when you get older. And you may not realize you taught them that, uh, some of the way they treat other people or say things. 
uh, when they're young, my kids are young, three and five, they definitely say it back to you very quickly. And you realize I have to be careful with what I'm going to say. I just you know my prayers go out to those parents who are just trying to make it work. It's a tough job. There's no really easy way to do it, but it's done well in community. It's done well with friends and family who can help guide and lead and work together through things. And it isn't just one way. Um, there's a, there's, there should be a tension there of maybe choosing a few different options, but being willing to consider how do you build someone up? How do you build a child that they grow up in a way that they can grow up, be stronger and better, and not feel like that if they fail, they're out. So I just want to leave you with that. Um, God bless and shalom.